This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Americans love to test boundaries. The Founding Fathers, famously boundary testers themselves with the likes of, say, the King of England, devised the Constitution for their new republic that attempted to separate powers among co-equal branches of government. But if there is one thing that is consistent in U.S. history, it is that people like to encroach and test those boundaries. We seem to be in a boundary testing moment, exemplified by current conflicts among Congress, the White House, and the courts. Here to discuss some of these patterns is Todd Ruger, CQ Roll Call's own legal affairs editor, or as I like to refer to it colloquially, as the law and order editor. Todd, welcome back to Political Theater. Uh, Howdy, Jason. Thanks for having me. So, not to shamelessly plug our own uh, work here, uh, but let's let's talk about uh, a series that Michael McInerney, uh, who is one of the uh, exemplary uh, staff writers on your team, uh, just finished. We published on Roll Call and CQ about the kind of legacy of the January six uh, select January six committee in Congress, and and particularly about what it says about the the limitations of congressional power. Uh, and and we'll we'll link that to some of the stuff that we're seeing in the current Congress. So let's talk let's talk about specifically the limits of subpoena power that the January six uh, committee found that Mike reported on. Uh, yeah, that was the third of three stories that uh, Michael wrote about the legacy of the January six committee. He did a great job. I encourage everybody to go read those. Um, link in the description, I'm sure. And um, show notes. That's what they're for. There you go. And. Um, and so the one of them focused on on uh, you had the January sixth committee, which is sort of the tip of the spear for congressional investigations. It is you know one of the highest profile um, committees to ever you know do an investigation. It was it had almost two years to do it. Um, it had the backing of the Democrats. Uh, the Republicans did did not uh, want to participate in it. Um, so the, there were several Republicans that were on it, but they were uh, amenable to the uh, to the cause. So there wasn't a lot of uh, infighting about how how important it was to investigate this or or blocks. It was just they spoke with one voice, and so you had um, a really powerful uh, example of of c- Congress trying to exert its investigative power. And and what we found is, uh, you know, it, it just take a take an example of what they were trying to do. Talking to Mark Meadows, they talked to Mark Meadows, they former tried, White House chief of staff and a former colleague, a former uh, Republican congressman from North Carolina. Right, and from the January sixth committee's perspective, somebody that was intimately involved with all the details of January sixth and the president and the president's actions that day and what he said and and um, and it was a, a key part of their investigation. And so they uh, they did what what Congress normally does, which is which is ask for uh, testimony and documents. Um, under the Trump administration, though, that that really got pressed. Uh, that really got pushed. Uh, Trump had an oppose all the subpoenas uh, stance uh, with Re- House Democrats uh, subpoenas uh, of of everything that he did during his uh, tenure that they didn't like. 
And so Mark Meadows initially uh, complied, which is how Congress has traditionally exerted that power. And then he said, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to come sit sit for a, a, a deposition. Um, and he actually filed his own lawsuit uh, to stop it, to, to stop from having to do it. And um, so there you have this guy and the committee wants to hear from him. And there's a civil lawsuit. The House eventually wins the civil lawsuit. The uh, House also decides, well, let's uh, recommend that this guy be prosecuted for contempt of Congress. Uh, the DOJ doesn't prosecute him. They decide not to prosecute him for a number of reasons, but probably because he participated somewhat with the committee. And there's a lot of issues about um, you know what what he could actually say uh, based on the president's uh, executive privilege because he was such a close advisor. So what you have is a committee that's very powerful, that's speaking with one voice, and they they never were able to get Mark Meadows to sit down uh, for a deposition. And, and we should note too that the, you know, the 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 committee was impaneled after Trump left office, uh, after after the events of January six, after uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated, and even with. Joe Biden, you know, uh, you know, appointing uh, the attorney general, Merrick Garland, uh, and it being a under a Democratic administration, it still passed on a on an enforcement mechanism, you know, you know, prosecuting Meadows, who was a private citizen at that that point. Uh, So it wasn't even a, a, a an issue of of with Meadows of current executive privilege of the current executives executive privilege. It was in a past administration and still there was that limit. There was that, you know, the, the, the separation of powers basically held there, even though the committee was like, this is, a, this is part of our uh, mission, you know, this, that, that the, that the house voted on when the, when they created this committee. Right. And I think it, it just underscores how much uh, Congress has to depend on the other branches to get information and enforce their subpoenas. Um, you know, you, uh, you have uh, the courts, which, um, move slowly. And uh, there were a lot of lawsuits that the January 6th committee pursued to get information. And then they, before they were finished, the committee disbanded because Democrats lost control of the House and Republicans didn't like the committee and they, they disbanded it. So, um, and then they depend on on the, the, the DOJ to prosecute anybody. They have their own power, which I'll just mention briefly is inherent contempt, where they can go uh, you know, arrest somebody and put him in a jail somewhere, theoretically, but it hasn't Fabled been house jail. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't it hasn't been used in in forever. And um, it, it, even the House General Counsel at the time, Doug Letter, in in some of his arguments, basically said it risked a gun battle if they you know if they wanted to go arrest the Attorney General. Like, who who's going to allow that, and who, how would they forcibly do it? It's just it it's it's not really a tool. So they're they're. You know that that's where they're pressing, and and they're running. They're going to run, continue to run into these issues, trying to enforce subpoenas. This this Congress and in the future, which is a very nice segue to what we're seeing uh, unfold in the in the current House Judiciary Committee. Uh, this is run by the Republicans because the, the Republicans have the House majority. Jim Jordan, uh, who uh, was was you know initially said that he would be happy to talk to the January sixth Committee, and then just never found the time uh, <laughs> uh, to, to to sit down with them. He is now the chair. Uh, not only of the Judiciary Committee, but of its uh, select committee on the weaponization of the federal government. 
Uh, Jordan has, uh, you know, teamed up with some of his fellow chairs, uh, of, you know, oversight on government reform and so forth to, uh, you know, ask for everything from documents that the New York district attorney, uh, is, is, uh, using to, you know, share with the grand jury about a decision, whether to indict the former president, Donald Trump, uh, to, you know, bringing the, you know, the FBI, you know, like asking for documents and, and, and he, it, it, it's interesting, you know, again, this is the, the this the Republicans say that this is a legitimate oversight, uh, that they can have a debate uh, among de- Democrats and Republicans and good government types and so forth about whether the, the legitimacy of the oversight or not, or whether it's a fishing expedition. But one of the things that Jordan seems to be running into is the same thing that the January 6th committee ran into, which is that people are, you know, if they're getting requests for information and sometimes subpoenas and they're like, uh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, so the first the first weaponization committee, or maybe it was the second hearing of that subcommittee, um, the Democrats brought on um, Jamie Raskin, a representative of Maryland, a Democrat, um, to sort of lay down their views about this. And, you know, he said to Jim Jordan, uh, the public wonders whether members who refuse to comply with congressional subpoenas themselves should be issuing congressional subpoenas to other people. And, um, and so, you know, you do have this sort of strange situation where somebody that did not comply with a congressional subpoena is Jim now, Jordan, is, Jim <laughs> Jordan is now issuing them. And, um, you know, at, at one, they, he already issued some, uh, and he got criticized by the, the chairwoman or the ranking member, I'm sorry, of that committee, uh, Stacy Plaskett, she's a delegate from the Virgin Islands, and uh, and she sort of hinted at this old norm, which was, she said, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Like, you should try to work this out if you want to get these documents, if you want to get this testimony, rather than issuing the subpoenas right away. Um, but, I, you know, it feels like uh, a lot of that norm is gone after uh, Trump just basically said, no, uh, I'm not going to comply with any subpoenas and nobody from uh, the executive branch is going to either. So you, you have this situation where the executive branch right now seems to have a leg up on the congressional branch. And, and it also, it's, it's, it's interesting because like there, I mean, people can say like, well, this weaponization committee, I mean, this is, I mean, it's right there in the title. I mean, like, you know, people are going to automatically be defensive in the, in the federal government, you know, particularly if they're in the FBI and so forth, but this could eventually, you know, if there's enough of an erosion here affect almost all forms of oversight, uh, you know, that aren't, aren't nearly as headline chasing or, you know, or, or prone towards the sensationalism of, you know, the, of, of that some of the, some of these like hearings, you know, attract. And so there's the danger here is that there, the, the, there's a certain degree of cooperation that's necessary between, between and among, you know, branches of government to, to make sure that everybody's, you know, operating off the same principles and, and, and transparency. And if, if it works its way down from the ones where you expect conflict to say the Senate aging committee or things like that, uh, it, the, then the government goes from being dysfunctional to almost unfunctional. Well, and, and, you know, from, from the perspective of the constitution, the Congress needs information to do legislation. And that's why they're granted a lot of power. And, um, you know, the harder it is for them to get information, the harder it will be to write better laws. Right. Another example of, you know, a sort of a, uh, you know, 
conflict uh, or or debate or you know one branch trying to influence another branch of government came out. Uh, we we saw earlier this week, or or at least the development in that. Uh, for years, Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, Democrat from Rhode Island, a uh, longtime senator, uh, he has been pushing uh, with with some support here and there, uh, you know, with d- people in different parts of the political spectrum for a more uh, a, a, a gu- ethical guidelines for Supreme Court justices and other members of the judiciary that's a, that has a little bit more teeth. And then this this week, uh, we actually got a development. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so there's many fronts on which Sheldon Whitehouse is pushing uh, for more disclosure in Supreme Court. And he got, um, you know, a, a very small change, but it's actually fairly substantial uh, in terms of, you know, I think how the public will view um, the, the justices in the court. It It's a rule that sort of uh, narrowed the, the exemptions for when they don't, the justices don't ha- and other federal judges don't have to report personal um, uh, gifts, basically. That includes travel, dining, hunting, um, vacationing at a place. Um, The only time that they don't have to report it now is if it's a private house. But if it's a business or something, then they have to report it. And from White House's point of view, that is going to... um, that's going to to let people know if there's somebody that has business before the court who is is giving gifts to justices and and how that might influence the court. Just uh, take strip away that appearance uh, or that ability to hide the appearance of conflict of interest. And you know, one of the reasons that I mean, I, I think uh, you know, a lot of. Uh, if, if I may assume, you know what a typical listener might be thinking, uh, which is no easy feat. But one one thing that somebody might, you know, who's listening to this podcast, think is like, well, that seems like fairly um, like common sense. But you know, the the thing to keep in mind here is that the you know the the judicial branch being a separate branch of government largely can, you know, devise its own ethical code, much like Congress. I mean, Congress can pass laws uh, that would uh, affect the judicial branch or the executive branch or itself, but then it also goes before the courts. <laughs> and so the, the each, each branch of government has a lot of power to determine uh, its own ethics and codes, you know, out, outside of just, you know, what's being, what's legal or illegal, uh, uh, according to the current revised statutes. And, you know, this can be, you know, they can force these things, they can try to force these things, but it's also like that there you get into these like sort of long battles, like say over, you know, television cameras at the Supreme Court and, and things like that. And the, the, because the, you know, the, the judicial branch, I would argue gets the least amount of attention uh, among, you know, people who are observing politics and the, and the media than the other two branches, um, you know, they, they've largely been left to police themselves. And so this has been years in the making. Well, I think the thing that you said there at the end is, is interesting and key is that, that they police themselves. Um, they, you know, there are ethical guidelines that they follow that federal judges are required to, but the Supreme court is not, uh, the Supreme court has told Congress, uh, when it's testified, that just some justices have testified that they're working or looking at a code of conduct for themselves, and but it's been years. And um, the you know the, the House Democrats, when they the Democrats in the House, when they had control uh, of the House last Congress uh, in the Judiciary Committee, they they actually passed a bill um, that would you know impose some some standards on them, including when the judge should not sit on a case if there's a conflict. 
I think in that particular instance, the Democrats were pointing to, um, uh, you know, uh, Ginny Thomas, who is the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, had some communications with, again, Mark Meadows around uh, that cha- name again? <laughs> challenging around challenging the uh, results of the 2020 election. And uh, and then he Clarence Thomas was, ended up being the lone dissenter on a case uh, that rejected Trump's legal effort, President Donald Trump's legal effort to stop the release of some White House records. So they saw that as a conflict of interest and he didn't have to recuse. And so that was part of their their issue, um, you know, and it also would have done a, a code of conduct for the justices and, and other provisions. But, what, you know, one of the Republicans um, on the committee brought it up. It, it, it is it's a separation of powers issue because like let's say you pass a law that uh, that they have to recuse on the certain case who's gonna enforce that how do they how, who enforces that and the the justices can just be over there and say well we think that the law is unconstitutional if you tell us when we can recuse or not so they there's all there's this kind of this negotiation and I think that's why um, the White House, letter that he got the concession on the on this is is a a pretty big deal because you have to get the justices to do it themselves almost um at this point because uh there doesn't seem to be the political will to to pass those bills republicans see this as just an attack on uh democrats attacking the supreme court because they don't like that there's a 6-3 majority republican appointed majority at this point so maybe Jim Jordan wasn't listening to Stacey Plaskett, but but John Roberts was, is what you're saying, on the, on the honey versus vinegar equation. <laughs> or White House. I mean, White House has just been banging this drum for years and has gone to their meetings, for example. They have a judicial conference every year. He's gone there. I'm sure he's given them an earful every year. And he's on this letter writing campaign. And to, to give the Republicans credit, um, you know, some of the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee with, him, with White House have joined him on letters. Um, because it is sort of a good governance thing, and and many people, uh, many Republicans on uh, in the Senate have a long for a long time uh, uh, championed more more uh, disclosure from the court. For example, uh, uh, Chuck Grassley from Iowa has I don't know how many years in a row put a bill in to put cameras in the courtroom. Um, and, and once again, there's a question of like if they pass that, who's going to make the Supreme Court do it? One one last example to round it out, which is a sign of movement, but perhaps uh, moot at this point almost, uh, is that for years, uh, several uh, you know uh, members of Congress, no, uh, notably uh, Senator Tim Kaine, a Democrat from Virginia, have been saying that the authorizations for use of military force uh, that the administration has been using that date back to the first uh, Iraq War in 1991 and the the second Iraq War uh, in in the you know more than 20 years ago uh, were out of date, but were still being utilized to conduct military operations across the globe. Uh, every year, it seemed for for several years, even after the Iraq War officially ended, uh, we we had we had this debate, but it never went anywhere. And the the House passed uh, this recently, and the Senate this week uh, followed suit. They even debated amendments, uh, for, uh, and they they repealed. The Senate uh, voted to repeal the two authorizations of use of military force, taking away uh, one of the one of the ways that the executive branch was using, you know, war power, uh, authority, uh, that, you know, the, several people so did, said it were, was, uh, past its due date. And so 
it's a small, small victory for people who wanted to reassert the Congress's war making authority uh, where, where it lies in the Constitution. But it is something that I think is notable, uh, even if it was overwhelmingly popular this time. And it just sort of happened, you know, kind of quickly, almost perfunctorily. Yeah, and I think is that a what, word perfunctorily? Did I say that right? <laughs> I think that, that what that underscores is um, just how how these separation of powers battles are gigantic and large, and you know, shifting very slowly, but they can sort of just pop uh, almost like you know plate tectonics on the Earth's surface, right? You know, just they're they're grinding, and then there's a big pop and an earthquake, and and so you can shake up how these you know the power is separated between these branches, but um, it's so slow and it takes a long time. And, uh, you know, Congress grabbing their war powers back uh, after, you know, decades, you 30 know, so, years in one case, so, <laughs> 32 you can years. See, so you can just see, I mean, like the, we're seeing these small little quakes, but, uh, you know, every once in a while there's a big one and, and who knows, uh, we're still feeling the aftershocks, I guess, of the, the, the Trump administration and, um, all that is still playing out. Well, Todd, thanks for walking us through this. We, uh, you know, went uh, junior uh, constitutional scholar level here. Uh, neither one of us is an attorney, uh, but I, I like to think that, you know, hopefully we, we were able to shed a little light on this because it's, I just, it seems like there is a pattern. There's, there's more, there's, there's something, you know, where there's a lot of boundary testing and I, I'm just glad that we got a chance to talk about it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening out there. Uh, appreciate your uh, subscriptions and and uh, your attention to political theater. If you like what we've heard, please recommend us, uh, rate us on iTunes, do all those kind of cool things. Sign up for our newsletter on rollcall.com, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.